0: Today on Let the Bible Speak. Can a child of God go back into sin and thus forfeit their salvation? We'll let the Bible speak about that next. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be with you and study the Word of God with you today. For today's study, we take up one of the most common and hotly debated questions surrounding the Bible and the Christian's relationship to God. Can a person once saved through sin and unbelief forfeit their salvation? Is it possible to be saved and later be found in a lost condition? Well, That theological dispute has raged for centuries and centuries, and it continues to divide the religious world yet today. It's common to hear preachers claim that a genuinely converted person can never lose their salvation regardless of what they may say, think, or do in the future. Some say that if a professing Christian is lost, well, they were never saved to begin with. And then there are others who live in perpetual fear that the slightest mistake or misstep while living the Christian life, may doom them to eternal hell. What does the Bible teach about all of this? Well, Let's read together from Paul's letter to the Church of Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, and we'll begin reading there in verse 1. Paul says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. The Galatians were being influenced by false teachers who were trying to convince them that keeping the law of Moses was necessary in order to be saved. They were erroneously teaching that unless one was circumcised as the Jews were commanded to be under the old covenant, That even though they had been baptized into Christ, without that Old Testament circumcision, they were not in good standing with God. Well, Paul teaches the very opposite. He says that circumcision in and of itself was neither right nor wrong for a person in Christ, but if they were being circumcised, meaning they were trying to find favor in God's eyes by going backward and keeping the Jewish law, that they were forsaking Christ and they were going back to a system that could not save. The King James Version says, you make Christ of none effect. The American Standard as well as the English Standard Version say, you are severed from Christ, and the result is you have fallen from grace. I've heard several preachers perform some impressive mental and rhetorical gymnastics to claim that this verse is not speaking of a person's salvation. But doesn't it sound strange on its face to say that one can be severed from Christ and one can fall from grace? and yet be in Christ, and be eternally saved by grace? Think about it. Our subject today will be, Can a Christian Forfeit Salvation? I believe we can, and we'll let the Word of God explain how and why after a song from the congregation. commonly known as once saved always saved also referred to as eternal security is one of the five tenets of calvinism the 16th century reformer john calvin building on the beliefs expressed by augustine centuries prior organized his system of theology into five major headings that all rested upon the idea that humans do not have free will to choose or reject god but instead we are predestined to either grace and glory or eternal condemnation The doctrine suggests that through the inherited guilt of Adam's sin, all people are born into sin and are totally depraved from birth and therefore do not have the capacity to respond to God's overtures of grace. Since all men are born in this condition, according to Calvin, and since they cannot choose God, then it was up to God to select and predestine certain ones to be saved while arbitrarily excluding everyone else. This election is unconditional and refers to individuals whom God chooses for salvation. As a result, Christ died only on behalf of those individuals and not as an offer of salvation to the entire world. Those who were specifically chosen by God are then called with an irresistible calling by the Holy Spirit and thus are saved. And since their election was unconditional and their calling irresistible, then it follows that their salvation is irrevocable. That is, if their salvation is by God's choice alone and not theirs, then they cannot choose to think, say, or do anything that will interrupt God's sovereign will and thus they cannot think, say, or do anything to forfeit the salvation God has given them. Now, I admit if I accepted the first four tenets of Calvin's doctrine, I would logically have to accept the fifth, but on the other hand, if the Bible does not teach the fifth point, the perseverance of the saints, then it could not logically teach the first four either. Well, I reject the notion that man does not possess free will or that God has not given him the choice of accepting or rejecting God's grace. For one thing, nearly 1,600 times in the King James Version, the Bible uses the little word if. And more than 200 of those times, it uses the phrase if thou, suggesting that something is conditional. And the person being spoken to has a choice in the matter. If you do this, then that will be the result or consequence. Or if you do not do this or the other, then you will not receive this or that. Moses told the people long ago that God had set before His people the choice of either life or death. They were to choose one or the other. Now, Clearly, the Bible teaches that God puts choices before us then. And we are accountable for how we respond to those choices. But it would logically follow that if we are just pawns on God's chessboard of time and space and we are not given the ability to choose, then the doctrine of Calvin would, uh, would be possible. Clearly though, God does put choices before men and women and there are consequences to those choices and that runs counter to the doctrines of Calvinism. Now, as I say, if the doctrine of once saved always saved is not taught in the Bible, then neither could the other four tenets of Calvinism be logically taught in Scripture. So today let's consider this doctrine of once in grace, always in grace, because that's a common question that people ask. Can I lose or forfeit my salvation? Well, let's see if the doctrine of once in grace, always in grace, accords with God's Word. There are at least five explanations of this subject in the religious world today. First, Calvinists, like we just mentioned, suggest that since salvation is all the work of God with no choice on man's part, then that saved person cannot make any choice that would condemn him. If he was saved solely by an arbitrary decision and act of God, then it would take another arbitrary act or decision of God for them to be lost. And then others say that Christians can indeed sin, but God won't allow them to remain there. God won't allow them to die and be lost because of those sins. They believe that God will chasten and correct them until they repent. And they may miss out on some of the blessings and joys of the Christian life in the meantime, but God will make sure that sin is purged from their life before they go to judgment. They will ultimately be saved. Some go so far as to say that a Christian who dies in a sinful and impenitent state will still be saved. Or they may lose some of their heavenly reward, but they will still go to heaven. And others say that a professing Christian can sin and be lost, but all that proves is that the person was never saved to begin with. No person, in other words, can truly possess salvation and then turn away from it and lose it. If so, they never had it. But then there's a fifth view that says that God expects Christians to be faithful to Christ. But if they turn away from Christ, and disregard His commandments, their soul stands in jeopardy. If they abandon the faith of Christ, if they go back into a life of sin, then they forfeit their place in Christ and are in danger of being lost. Now, what do the scriptures teach of all of that? That's the question. And it's not how you or I feel about the matter. It's not what seems right or fair according to our way of thinking. It's not, well, it seems to me It's not what the creeds of various religious bodies affirm, Westminster Confession or otherwise. And it's not even what the majority of preachers and theologians say. What does the Bible say? Now the book of Galatians from which we took our textual reading a few moments ago is a warning to a church in danger of apostasy. Their members were in danger. They were dealing with what we call Judaizing teachers who were trying to enforce the law of Moses on Gentile converts to Christianity. They were telling them that unless you are circumcised and keep the Old Testament law, you cannot be saved. Despite the fact you were baptized into Christ and put your faith in Him, you've still got to go back and keep the law. Well, Paul calls such teaching in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 a yoke of bondage. And he goes on to say that those who go down the path of being saved by keeping the Mosaic law, well, that obligates them to keep the entire law. Which no man except Jesus Christ was ever able to do, and therefore that condemns that person. His conclusion is in verse 4 if you do that, you have become estranged from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. Now, if salvation is found in Christ, how can you be saved while estranged from Christ? If salvation is by God's grace, how can you be saved having fallen from grace? Which, by the way, many say is impossible for the Christian to do. But that's not what Paul said. He said you can fall from grace. He said you can become severed from Christ. Now, some will counter that Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that's very true. But we can't pit Scripture against Scripture. They're both true. We have to harmonize the Scriptures. And friend, the fact that God loves us, cares for us, wants us to be saved, and has acted in the most supreme way to work for our good, and that nothing can separate us from that love expressed in Christ does not mean that we cannot willfully turn away from Christ and forfeit all that God offers us in Him. Paul again said you can be severed from Christ. You can fall from grace and yes jesus also said in john chapter 10 verses 27 and 28 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me and i give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand well that's absolutely true thank god no one can snatch you out of the hand of christ including the devil when you trust in christ yes you are secure from satan's vices and satan's attacks there is refuge and safety in Christ. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, said James. And that's a promise. But the question is, what if you refuse to submit to God? What if you don't resist the devil? And many Christians don't. What if you choose to follow sin? And many who profess to follow Christ do just that. What if you go back to the life you came out of, like Demas who, having loved this present world, forsook Paul, forsook the ministry. Well, Peter answered that in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. He said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's a warning to the Christians that Peter is writing to. Can a Christian fall prey to the devil and be spiritually devoured by him? Well, Peter warns that that's possible. If the devil devours him, can he still be in a saved condition? Think about that. No, Peter instead, like James, urges the Christians in the next verse to resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You see, the devil cannot steal you away from Christ, but you can choose to stop trusting in Christ living in Christ, serving Christ, and when that happens, you become a ready meal for the roaring lion, the devil. Friends, that's more than losing some measure of reward. That's a matter of losing your soul. That's a matter of perishing. And the warning is when you leave Christ, when you by your own choice are severed from him, that's what will happen to your soul. Now, it may be a very comforting doctrine to suggest that nothing a person who has once been saved Can say, think, or do will put their eternal soul in jeopardy. But friends, such a doctrine is simply not upheld in the Word of God. And I want to stress here that we're not talking about a Christian walking a tightrope to heaven and never knowing whether we are saved or not. We're not talking about one who refuses to... or rather, I should say we are talking about one who refuses to submit to God, one who knowingly rebels against Christ, one who stops believing and following the word of Christ, who apostatizes from the faith, who walks away from the faith. Listen to the position that puts a Christian in, according to Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. I want you to listen very carefully to what Peter says as he describes the former and then latter conditions of these apostates. He's not writing about people who are earnestly trying to follow Christ. He's writing about people who have turned away from him, And he says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, They are again entangled in them and overcome, and the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Notice verse 20. They have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Does that sound like someone who was never saved to begin with? Verse 21. They knew the way of righteousness. They turned from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22. They are like the proverbial pig who was washed but returned to her wallowing in the mud and mire. My friend Peter knew nothing of this teaching that one could not turn away from Christ and return to a life of sin. He says of one who does so, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And it would have been better had they never known it than to turn away from it. Friend, if, you've departed, if you're a Christian and you've departed from Christ, you know what you need to do about that? You need to repent. You need to confess your sin to God and you need to seek His forgiveness and get back in fellowship with God and back in fellowship with His people. That's what God tells you to do about that. Yes, you can be restored to Christian living, you can be restored to the faith, but if you remain astray from Christ, and astray from Christ suggests you were once in Christ, if you are astray from Christ, you need to return to Him because you're not going to be saved astray and estranged from Christ. My friend, the New Testament and old alike are chock full of these kinds of warnings and admonitions written to the people of God. Oh, now in an effort to affirm their comforting doctrine, I've heard preachers and others say all of these verses that we're citing are being taken out of their context, but rarely do they attempt to show how. How is 2 Peter chapter 2 teaching anything but what we've just expressed? You see, they make the accusation to cast doubt on those who challenge their doctrine, but in these and many other verses, they in plain unequivocal language warn Christians in danger of leaving the faith or stubbornly and flagrantly living in sin that there are condemning consequences to such a course. You know, when Paul wrote to the troubled church at Corinth, he rebuked their ungodly behavior surrounding their assemblies and their observance of the Lord's Supper. Now there were not just a few minor issues that needed to be corrected and tweaked at Corinth. Here was a church that was in pretty bad spiritual condition and Paul had to become very, very firm and emphatic with them when he wrote his letter largely of rebuke to them. And in this case, in 1 Corinthians 11, they were making a mockery out of eating of the one loaf which represented the one body of Christ and drinking of the cup which represented their covenant relationship with Christ and one another sealed with the blood of Jesus. They were making a mockery in doing that by turning around and treating one another in a way that reflected anything but that, treating one another in an ungodly way. Now they were coming together and having a meal, or it was called in ancient times a love feast, where anything but love was being shown. It was a gross and gluttonous display of one-upsmanship where the rich were shaming the poor. And they were then coming to the table of the Lord with such a disgraceful spirit that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20, according to the American Standard Version, that their attitude made it impossible for them to eat the Lord's Supper. That is, they could not worthily and rightfully eat the Lord's Supper with such attitudes prevailing among them. It was hypocrisy. And he says that instead they were to examine themselves as they partook. He's saying they were to examine their hearts and attitudes And they were to discern the precious body of which they were a part as they approached this table. And they weren't doing that. And therefore, Paul says, they were eating and drinking damnation to themselves. This was such a serious matter that Paul says some of them were already being judged by God for their conduct. He specifically says some were sick and some had already died. Now, I personally believe that Paul was referring there to some of them being stricken with illness because of their sin. But that's another subject for another time. But now listen to what Paul says about this judgment that they were receiving for their ungodly behavior. Verses 31 and 32. He says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now Paul is saying that this was occurring as a corrective warning from the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the outside world. Does that not suggest that they were in danger of being condemned along with the world if they did not accept Paul's rebuke and repent of their sin? In the same letter Paul mediates a dispute they were having over the eating of meat that came from pagan temples and idolatrous sacrifices. Beginning in chapter 8, Paul concludes that since an idol is nothing to a Christian and a person is just taking sustenance, not engaging in pagan worship, that it was not sinful to eat such meat. But he warns that some with a weaker conscience could be led to sin against their conscience if the stronger were not careful about how they practice their liberty. And I want you to notice in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 11 what he says could happen. And try to reconcile this with the Calvinistic doctrines of limited atonement and perseverance of the saints or eternal security. 1 Corinthians 8, beginning of verse 9, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And that, of course, would cause them to sin because it would violate their conscience. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin, Paul taught in another place. But he says, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Well, he's obviously not talking about physically perishing. So how else could they perish other than spiritually? You see, they could destroy that person's conscience and cause them to fall away from the faith altogether and lead them to sin against God. And if that happened, he says, a person for whom Christ died would perish. Now we have only touched on a few passages that contain such warnings, but are they not enough to warn us of the eternal implications of departing from Christ and from the faith? If the Bible warns us not to do so, doesn't that mean that it's possible to do so? Well, Lord willing, in our time together next week, we're going to continue our look at this important topic Can a Christian forfeit salvation? So I want to encourage you to be with us and have your Bible and notepad handy next week as we notice several other pertinent passages. I'll return with more after another song from the congregation. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to see all of our past broadcasts, plus extra videos including Let the Bible Speak Classics all the way back to the 1960s. And get new updates, go to YouTube and search for Let the Bible Speak TV and click on subscribe. Connect with us on social media. Go to Facebook.com and search for Let the Bible Speak TV. Be sure to join us next week as we continue our study on Can a Christian Forfeit Salvation? We'll look at a number of other passages, and I hope you'll be ready for that study if the Lord wills next time we get together. If you'd like a copy of today's lesson, we'll be glad to send you a free transcript. There's never any charge for the transcripts. Just get in touch with us and ask for the lesson, Can a Christian Forfeit His Salvation? Part 1, and we will be glad to send that to you as quickly as we can. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you will make your plans to be back next time and help us spread the word about Let the Bible Speak, won't you? If you're watching over television, encourage your friends and neighbors to watch. Set your DVR so you can record it from week to week. And if you're watching online, well, we encourage you to share the programs on your social media platforms and however you may be willing to share that information with others. And we hope you'll help us to grow our audience from week to week. Thank you for joining us for the program. We hope you have a great week ahead, and I'll look forward to meeting you back here again if it be the Lord's will. Until then, may God richly bless you.
1: Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by the Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org.